0: Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show.
1: Classic hits.
0: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to grow up in a religious cult? I know a lot of you are probably saying, oh, I'm a Catholic. sure I am. No, but I mean, you know what I mean. You know the type of cults that I'm talking about. Well, tonight I'm going to speak to one woman who not only was raised in a religious cult, but escaped one as well. And she's also, Daniela Young, is a former U.S. Army captain and one of the first women to conduct deliberate ground combat operations with the Army's female female engagement teams. She's currently at work on a memoir about her experience being raised in a religious cult, being excommunicated and serving in war. She was born into the Children of God religious cult and escaped when she was 15 years of age. And now she's a motivational speaker. I don't want to speak to her and I speak have her on the line. Daniela Young, good, uh, good evening to you. I don't know what time of the day it is where you are, but it's evening here anyway. Good evening.
1: Good evening. It's 1 p.m. where I'm at. Okay, where, where? Seattle.
0: Oh, you're in Seattle. Okay, because I know you went to Texas at one stage, but I was wondering where you were now. Um, Daniela, let's, let's go back to the very start, okay? You were born when your mother was actually under the age of 15. Um, and because and people might be quite shocked by that, but that wasn't shocking in this particular community, the children of God. Do you remember the early years of your life and the very, or is that something you will kind of want to blank out of your life?
1: Um, no, I do remember the early years. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, I'm writing it about it all now in a memoir. Um, I was born just after my mom turned 15. But so obviously, you know, she got pregnant when she was 14 and it was not that rare. I, I am actually one of the few women from uh, the cult that I know that reached the age of, like, 19 or 20 without having a baby.
0: And and to remind our um, listeners that the, 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 the man who impregnated her was probably three or four decades older than her.
1: Yes, around 43-ish. He was actually older than her father.
0: Okay, and, and for people who've never so, heard of this particular cult, right. the Children of God... It's found I member, David Berg, who died many years ago. Um, I don't know if his wife is still alive or not. I know she, but he had numerous nicknames, King David and Mo Moses and all sorts of names he had. But this guy basically believed that sex was empowering and that God created boys and girls, to, uh, you know, to be able to have children by the age of 12. So his whole philosophy was based around the enjoyment of sex, no matter what age you were. Yes.
1: Um, so his wife is still alive. She's still running the cult, kind of in a, a weird online version, I think. Um, But he, yeah, you know, so it started off sort of evangelical religious group. Many, many of these were starting in the United States in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, looking at it now from the perspective of almost a business, I say, you know, I think his differentiator was the sex thing. Like, that's how he was able to differentiate himself from all of these other new religious movements that were going on. And his whole view was, you know, the devil hates sex, God loves it. And so the devil has infiltrated, you know, every other religion and made sex evil, but we know the right thing.
0: I mean, America Um, was going through a lot of changes at the time, of course, because that was the kind of end of the summer of love. And I suppose you you had the Manson family murders in and around that time as well. And there was a lot of these kind of cults at the time. But as you rightly pointed out, this one was very different in respect of, it seems to be completely about sex or certainly his perverted view of the world and using the scriptures, I suppose, to justify it.
1: Right. And, you know, a lot of the, so I've spent probably 20 years now studying all these different cults and all these different groups and, a lot of it is, is very, very similar. It's just kind of different details, right? Like what scriptures they used and twisted and what, what theories they used, even in cases like Jim Jones, where it wasn't necessarily scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he studied all these cults, and he loved it, and he emulated it. And right around the, the 70s, when the Manson stuff was going on and sort of the world for cults was heating up in the United States, He received this revelation from God to go spread throughout the world and, you know, live in third world countries and change their names and, um, you know, spread God's word, which of course was also a great way to Mm -hmm. sort of avoid the authorities and everything back home. And that's also right around the time when he started using religious prostitution, so using his female members to go and use sex to attract other members, to attract donations,
0: and I mean, it was a big community. Time, I mean, start- they, had, they had 130 communities, and they reckon, uh, you know, at its peak, probably 10,000 members So uh, all over the world. So, it, you know, this wasn't small stuff. This A lot of people followed this guy and believed what he said.
1: Yes, and I think the the assumption or the, the best numbers is that there was almost 100,000 full-time members like throughout the 50 years, um, including, you know, Thousands and thousands of children like me and like my mother that were born into it uh, and I, grew I, up I, in it.
0: I, I do want to get on, and I, I know we want to talk about, you know, you, you, you talk about transitional periods. And I want to get on to that in a few minutes in relation to the army. But just to give, I suppose, listeners an idea of a typical day in a cult when you're probably about 10 or year, 11 years of age when you start to discover yourself. I mean, what was a typical day like? Would you be woke up in the morning? I know you all lived in sort of, I, I saw some of the photographs online of all these kind of bunk beds um, and obviously sleeping with other children and other families all in one big room. But I mean, what was a typical yeah. day like?
1: So it was very, very institutionalized. So yes, we'd be woken up at, you know, six or seven by someone shouting Reveille and singing Bible verses. And we'd have to get up and get dressed and we'd spend a few hours studying the Bible and studying the. You know, the written words of, you know, this man who was considered to be our prophet, um, who was David Berg, of course, basically everything he said was recorded. Um, mm-hmm. Something like 300,000 pages of of his words um, have been recorded. And we would then, you know, essentially be put to work. Like there was a lot of cleaning. There was a lot of, depending on what age you are, you were taking care of other children when I was 11, I became the cook for this, you know, large commune. And I spent my mm. whole day cooking three meals a day for, you know, up to 50 people. Um, and when I was younger, like before the age of 10, we lived in giant, giant places with 150, 200 people. Yeah, we would have bunk beds that were three or four stacked on top of each other. And, you know, I saw I only saw my parents. About one hour a day in the evenings.
0: And where, were and your, where then, would your parents be? Where would they be? Off of the church. So or? they would
1: be working. Oh, okay. So my my mother was eventually married off to a, another man much older than her, and he was a he was one of the main uh, cartoonists that would draw. Like um, mm-hmm. you know, they had all kinds of literature for the cult, um, and he would illustrate all the children books. Um, so everybody knows who my, my dad I, I did was. see one
0: of the illustrations online, which was the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it was David Berg as God, and these two kids, yes. what well, seemed to be kids, um, you know, which were meant to be Adam yes. and Eve. Um, and uh, to earn money, to get food, you had to earn money, and I believe members basically were sent out to do street performances and beg, and he you would only get to keep 10% of it, of anything you earned. Yes,
1: entirely we would do a lot of, you know, singing on the streets and begging for money. And I mean, we essentially got to keep none of it. Like personally, Mm -hmm. um, it would, you know, I think 14 or 20 something percent by the end was sent up to the leadership and then, you know, we would use it to support ourselves and like a very small amount of it would go into the source of charity work, which was usually the, that was sort of the front of the group. Um, Yes, and very, you know, all the, the literature, like you said, it was all very sexual. It all put David Berg and his key leadership in the roles of God or the prophets and also a lot of apocalyptic theory, right? So, the you know, the world was going to end any day, and this is why we didn't need to go to school. And, you know, so we spent our childhoods playing, playing hide and seek, but we were playing heaven's girl, and we were like God's chosen Children hiding and waiting for the Antichrist and his forces to come, you know, take us and, and mm. rape us and murder us and you know send us to heaven for,
0: and, and for if God. It, and if it doesn't bring back. And I don't want to bring back too many bad memories for you, Daniela. Although I know you've spoken about it many times, and I watched one of your TED talks as well. But if it, what would happen, and when would this kind of sexual activity happen, and how are children chosen by these adults?
1: So now there's two pretty distinct time periods in the cult. And depending on who you ask, you will get a very different answer. So like when my mother was growing up, it was open love, everybody slept with everybody. The leaders would literally make a schedule and you would go see on the schedule like who you were sleeping with that night. And essentially from the age of 12, girls and boys were expected to be adults and to be you know like- on a schedule, sleeping with other adults. Um, and of course this was happening, you know, the whole theory was God is love and sex is love and God loves children. And so it was all very out in the open. Um, after Berg died, so after the founder died, his wife sort of changed things and was like, we're getting a lot of bad publicity. A lot of this actually had to do with my mom getting pregnant from somebody so much older and then realizing how bad this looked. the outside world but the message didn't change from God still intends sex for children it just changed to the outside world can't understand and so it all still happened and so but it was in a different way you know Mm -hmm. when I was growing up the abuse was much more the outright sexual abuse was much more hidden Um, I think in my situation it was much more violent because it was hidden but there was no, you know, going to your parents to ask for help because your parents were part of the group. Well, they, you were, know?
0: they were brainwashed with the rest of the group, of course. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So,
0: I mean, you know, I mean, I mean what was, was, that, and what was, was the so point, much- Daniela, when you said to yourself, well, I mean, I know you were 15 when you escaped. But w- at what point did you say to yourself, I have to get out of here? And how long did it take you at 15 years of age? God, you were just a child. How long did it take you? <laughs> To, to get yourself out of there or to plan this escape?
1: Yeah, so the the first moment for me, what I describe as kind of the crack in the, in the brainwashing, um, which I've written about in, you know, my article published in Narratively Journal was on September 11th. We were in the United States where I'd never been before. And, you know, the first time I saw live television on, other than for a, a World Cup football game, okay. um, was on nine eleven, So this was like the first time I saw the news live in my life. And, you know, the buildings are falling down. I'm trying to comprehend what live news is. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm hearing this rhetoric of terrorism and religious extremists. Meanwhile, everyone around me is praising God for his judgment. They're jubilant. They're happy, right? They're rejoicing for the destruction and the punishment on America, which we've always been taught was evil. And I definitely had this moment of like, you know, I'm 14, like up to 3000 people are going to die this day. And I don't feel like it's right for us to be thanking God.
0: Mm -hmm. So your common Um, sense, your common sense was overtaking (laughs) the brainwashing that had taken part for years.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think it, you know, it's, It's now, as I look back on everything as a whole and as I'm writing about it, it was, you know, it was chipping away throughout my whole life. I mean, there Um, were so many
0: people taken in by this. And, you know, the Hollywood stars, Rosie McGowan... Um, uh, the, the guy who plays the Joker at the moment of the new the movie isn't that him uh, Jock and Phoenix is that his name or what's his name how do you pronounce yep. it? Joaquin yep. Phoenix River and, and Joaquin
1: yeah. Phoenix
0: yeah yep. they, they were all this. Yeah. and now it still exists but it's called The Family now and it's a much milder version of what it used to be before yeah okay so you got and to- you know
1: another another big name person was Jeremy Spencer from Fleetwood Mac okay who is still a big part of this and was
0: yeah okay. I
1: grew up living with him my whole life
0: Right. Okay. That's very um, interesting. Okay. So you, you, you so moved to Aibonis, you ended up in Texas was, at that stage, then you moved into Texas.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you were asking like about how long it took from yeah. the moment that I was like, I need to get out of here. Um, it took me about a year and a half, almost two. Okay. Um, to sort of get, uh, I don't know, I sort of mounted a campaign of rebellion until they basically didn't want me there anymore.
0: And how do they react and to I, your rebellious behavior, by the way? How do they react to that?
1: <laughs> I mean, lots of, lots of punishment, lots of different things. Um, you know, I was like I would refuse to, we were living in Mexico at the time, would have refused to speak Spanish, would refuse to go out and do the performances. And I would be, you know, isolated in my room. So you were, you were essentially room, the
0: spawn of off. Satan. <laughs> but that's probably the way they looked at you. This one is the spawn of Satan. So Yes,
1: exactly. I, Actually, the part two of my book is called Children of Satan. Oh, which okay, is about, <laughs> <we're not>. okay <laughs> how dare you.
0: Okay, so I mean. Get out of there. Um, and
1: what I would say is like the year at that time, the year that you were 15, so at that time you became an adult at 16. So the year that you were 15, you spent an entire year getting like extra indoctrinated into the cult. And so we would spend hours and hours, six to eight hours every day with an adult, like reading all of this, the secret sexual literature and all of the new revelations and, an adult actually said to me, you know, Daniela, prepare yourself because you're going to have your own children soon. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and that was when I was like, all right, I need to break a big rule. I need to get kicked out of here. Like, I just need to be gone.
0: Yeah, because this was all about reproduction. That's what this whole cult was about. So, in other words, once you hit 15, you got to start having babies because we need to get more people into the cult. And that's how they recruited members, essentially, by having them born <laughs> in the cult. Um so how yeah, did you how did you get moment, out? And by
1: that point in sorry, um oh. by that point in time the beliefs were so extreme that nobody was joining. So the only new membership was new babies.
0: Yeah. And I'm sorry by the way, there was a sl- I know there's a very slight delay on the phone line, so sometimes you're hearing me slightly after I said, so I know that's confusing the two of us a little bit. So don't worry about too much about it. But anyway, so the day you got out, do you remember that day you got out?
1: Yes. So I you know, got in big trouble. They were going to excommunicate me. Then they weren't sure if they should because my parents were so famous. And I was, at this point, I was the oldest third generation kid in the cult. So it was going to be sort of like big news. And when one person leaves, other people leave. There was all of this consternation. And then, and I was scared because I was 15 and I had never been in the outside world before. And then my mother actually took me aside and was like, you should go. Like, we have a place for you, um, which was at the apartment of my stepsister, who I'd only met three times, who was living in Houston, Texas, and agreed to, you know, let me crash at her place. Okay. And so my parents took me to Texas, dropped me off, I asked for 20 bucks, she didn't have it, and I sort of just watched them drive away. And I was in
0: Texas. And you're 15 years of age, in the middle of Texas, which is a big place for people to know, and you're trying to figure out how I'm gonna get to this stepsister of mine, so you eventually got there. And I'm going to skip on a little few years, but you did go to high school, um, and you try to get yourself an education. Um, you then decided to join the military. What what made what brought you to that decision to join the military?
1: You know, so I did I did high school and I did college, and then after college, you know, at the time or university, um, at the time I was like. Gosh, I'm so lucky to, you know, have been an American citizen. I was able to come here. I was able to get myself an education. I should do something to give something back. Now, when I look at it, I see it as, you know, I went from one institution that was the cult to a Another university. <laughs> and I had, I don't think I had any idea how to function in the outside world. I had a degree in English. I was graduating in the middle of the biggest financial crisis, and I found out about this program where I could sign three years of my life over to the army. They would make me an officer, I would get training, I would make, you know, more money than the average college graduate, and I would probably get to go to war and
0: and you, and you did do all but that as well. And I'm going to come to that in a second. I did. But yeah. but the point <laughs> is, and I, I, when I was listening to your TED Talk, I was thinking about this as well, about you're talking about lost, being lost in transition. All through our lives, we were technically part of cults, if you want to call it that, because we're indoctrinated into groups everywhere we move, be it in school, uh, be it with our parents and families, which is like a little mini cult because we all have the same morals, I suppose, or we're all taught to have the same morals. Then we move to a school where they teach us another set of morals, another set of rules. Then we go from there to college, another set of rules. Then we go to a job, which is another set of rules. So we got, we're constantly moving into different peer groups, aren't we?
1: Yes, and that... You know, exactly what my TED Talk is about is, look, my story sounds very extreme, and I've been through these very big transitions, but exactly like you said, like, we all go through that, and we all are, you know, people can look at my life and say, oh, you were brainwashed, and that is true, but we are all socialized to believe of course what? we are. We're socially we're conditioned. By.
0: Absolutely, we're socially conditioned. <laughs> Maybe not to the extent, obviously, you were and religious extremists, but we are all socially conditioned to some extent. So getting to the army, anyway, you, you were the first woman to conduct deliberate ground combat operations with the army's female engagement teams. But I, when I was listening to the TED Talk, there was one part that, that really got me, and that was you were in Afghanistan, and you were up on a watch post, and you decided at that point you didn't want to live anymore. And your big decision on that particular night was how? And because you said there was no lights, uh, and you described it really well. All you could see was the stars in the sky. There was no lights. There was no. There didn't seem to be electricity, obviously, or there was no no city lights. And your decision that night was how do I kill myself? Um, Do I do it with a gun? Do I jump off the bows? What do I do? So, what brought you to that point?
1: Yes. So you know, I ultimately lack of connection, Um, and I think most. Suicidal ideology comes from just feeling so lonely and like, it's never going to get better. And I struggled with that for about 10 years from leaving the cult. And, you know, with cults, it's so drastic because there is this very, very strong sense of community. Um, Supposedly that's true in the military. Also, it's a lot less true for females. And then definitely for female, female officers are very, very isolated. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, is there a bit of resentment
0: Is there some resentment of female officers? I I I know that's starting to change, but obviously it is still predominantly male. So would there be some resentment of female officers?
1: I don't I don't think it's so much resentment as people just don't realize how isolated women are when you're when you're deployed overseas or when you're in the military, mm-hmm. you know, as officers like you are only allowed to socialize with other officers and at that point in time it was about 11 percent women and so i you know literally could not have a friend because if i socialized with other men it was looked at as bad for my career and for theirs but if i socialized with other women there just weren't any okay um and you know there was a whole lot of it was a very uh you know dangerous environment for women overseas. There's been a lot of news, at least in the US about this, you know, and the basically soldier on soldier rape is really, really bad Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. And so, you know, I was at a point where I had experienced sexual assault in the military, not to mention, of course, in my childhood, I had just lost so that uh, members of my patrol team, so that uh, experiment that we were doing, putting women into combat, like, I had had my whole team killed one day, and had just lost some very good friends, brothers, and I just was so tired of about you know ten years at this point of trying to relate to people and never I, I, feeling I, get a sense, that I fit in.
0: I get a sense that you know even in the cult uh, and maybe ne- then again in the military, was there a sense that you felt maybe you were being kind of a pawn or you were being used? Because you mentioned there the word, use used the word experiment. Uh, was there a se- <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm just getting the wrong sense of that, but did you, was there a sense that you felt like you were just some sort of little pawn in a game being used in these what cults, I suppose, or communities?
1: Yeah, you know, for, for me, the experience of institutionalization was very, very strong in the military, just like in the cults. And I think that I experienced it sort of more intensely and was much I'm much less willing after doing all of the work to unbrainwash myself I'm Mm -hmm. much less willing to just swallow anything hook line and sinker whether that is patriotism whether that is you know we hate these people whatever it is and so I was very very questioning now as far as for what you're saying with the pawn I mean Yes, in a way, but that's probably true of everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the time we were, you know, so in 2000, this was 2011 and there was still a ban on women in combat. Like women were not allowed to be in active combat, according to, you know, U.S. Congress, which of course was basically a farce because it was still happening. Mm -hmm. And so they started this kind of secret experiment of putting together these teams of women. So our group was like 40 women that basically got no training. We just volunteered they sent us out to all these different special operations units and we just started going out with them. And that was, I mean, very interesting from the point of culture change and questioning our perspectives. You know, we had, I I expected to show up to a group of men that did not want me there because all I'd ever heard from the men around me in the military was women aren't as good, aren't as strong, could never do these things. And we showed up to these units and they were like, oh, thank God we have women. <laughs> um, thank God we have backup. Yeah. Thank God we have backup, but also thank God we have women because mm. we're operating in this you know, strict Muslim environment where we're, we're fighting the terrorists in their land, but we're not fighting the local people. So we're trying to win over the local people, and to do that, we have to respect the limitations of their religion, which is men can't touch women. So all of a sudden, you know, the U.S. Army has been looking at this as, like, women, again, aren't strong enough, aren't good enough. But it it changed very, very quickly in Mm -hmm. under a decade now to be, like, men and women on the other side are trying to kill us. Obviously, we should have women on our side, you know. So there was this time we went into a village, and, like, within 10 seconds of getting on the ground, the men noticed that the ground was disturbed, like someone had been digging, and I noticed that there were no children. And together we were like, oh, there's a bomb in the road right there. Let's not go there. You know, and we're literally, we're walking back to the helicopter and the commander, who's of, cor- of course, a man, is like, I love having women on the team. Like You guys <laughs> notice the silliest things. <laughs> you know? Women
0: are a bit <laughs> and- more observant when it comes to these things. But OK, so let's get back to this night that you were in Afghanistan. Stars are shining. No city lights. You wanted to kill yourself. What stopped you?
1: Hard to say.
0: Because I know in um, the TED Talks, you ended by saying you kicked suicide's ass. So <laughs> so there was obviously some positive thought in your head that stopped you or made you want to move on with your life or continue on with your life. Something obviously triggered in your head. Pardon the pun. Yeah,
1: you know, <laughs> that night, I just think, that night specifically, I just think it was the logistics. You know, like I wasn't sure if the tower was tall enough. You know, I didn't want to just end up injured. <laughs> with a
0: broken leg. Um, that would really, be the worst thing that could happen. It's
1: really hard to shoot yourself with a rifle. So I, I decided not to. But what, you know, overall, I think the, the kind of line in the sand, what helped me get over it and, and to really get over that feeling of isolation was it was after we'd come back from Afghanistan and I was angry and depressed and upset. It, it, like it didn't get better. It got worse. And I was describing all of my, I'm so, you know, I'm so special. I'm so different. I'm so tortured to a friend of mine who was an army major. So it was a couple of ranks above me. And he just looked at me and he said, Daniela, get the F over yourself. You're not as special as you think you are. Mm. And it was very, you know, it was very tough love. It was very hard for me at the time. And I probably spent another three to four years thinking about that. But, you know, now I can say that I have been sort of giving myself permission to be depressed and to be isolated because I grew up in a cult. Of course, no one can understand me because I've experienced so much trauma in my life. Of course, I'm depressed. I sort of compare it to like teenagers. And do you, days, how do they you think still they have think no one can understand them
0: <laughs> all these years later now? And I, and I know, look, you've been incredibly successful now. You know, you're a founder of the C and CEO of Task Force Art. You're a motivational speaker. Your wife. You're a mum. And look, you've everything behind you now. But I mean, do you? Does it still have a profound effect on your life now? Do you? Would you have mental health problems now, or you know, do you have problems now? Would you still suffer from depression?
1: So i I definitely don't think I suffer from depression. I still go to counseling. I probably always will. Um, I am a lot of what I'm doing now, which is writing this, you know, one one memoir called Cultured, which is all about, you know, how human beings operate in groups through the stories of my life. It's that has been very interesting. But, you know, I have a I have a daughter and there's a lot of times when she is experiencing kind of a normal, lovely American childhood and has these extreme moments of joy and. It will make me both happy and very sad at the same time. Because you didn't because have that. the way I characterize all of the abuse from the cult rolled up into there was just no spontaneous moments of joy.
0: Like we were always That's really sad by the way to think about that. Under Danielle. Control. You know, the, to think it that you is. know throughout your childhood. You didn't you didn't experience a normal childhood like anybody else. It almost like a child actor, I suppose, like many child actors. And I've talked about Michael Jackson in the past and the childhood he would have had, which would have been. I a lot of people think oh, the most famous person in the world, but you're actually isolated from everybody because you're so famous. This would be similar in that context that you're isolated from the world and you're isolated into one way of thinking, and not only that, of course, actually exploited as well um, by these individuals who are clearly uh, deranged. Um, but you you talk about, I suppose, this. Uh, I suppose the mentality of normal groups and you know being a product of how we are socialized. So in other words, all throughout our lives, we, we, we're all parts of groups, and we, we just move from one group to another, and just have to hope that all the groups are positive, I suppose.
1: <laughs> well, you know, like, I guess one of the ideas that I'm working with and writing about, and when I coach business leaders on how to sort of create culture change, it's that, you know, I actually think the good and bad titles, sort of disguise what's really going on. It's like, look, groups are all similar. And the way that humans operate in groups are very, very similar. This is why there's something called organizational psychology, which studies groups. And it's more about, like, it can go wrong very slowly and nobody will realize it because nobody will question. So, you know, I... I think like, of course you have to be in a group because if you're alone, your whole life, you will be miserable. Like you want to be a part, everyone wants to be a part of these groups that have like sort of missions and ideologies and, and brotherhood and community. But, uh, I think, you know, unquestioning obedience is a huge, huge red flag. And Mm -hmm. the U S military doesn't operate that way anymore. Like the concept of unquestioning obedience is going away. Um, and I don't, you know, anytime any leader wants unquestioning obedience from me, that is when I say thank you and goodbye.
0: But is the, is the military um, has the military not always been about discipline? and and obedience is part of discipline and of course we all have this kind of stereotypical view of some sergeant and you're all standing there in a line and he said stand up straight look at the state of you young man Clean us." With... You know, so we all have this view of this stern sergeant giving out to you and belittling you and making you feel worthless which, which with the best intent of making you disciplined uh, but that is a good thing isn't it to some extent
1: i mean so yes and no Again, like you have to have, yes, you have to have certain discipline. You have to have certain stuff. You know, I remember when I was going through basic training and everyone else around me just hated those drill sergeants, but I could look at them and be like, oh, they're programming us right now. Like what they are doing is taking us from being an unorganized group of civilians and make us into a single unit that can operate together. Yeah, well, they and want to, so, they want to take
0: out the sensitivity because the last thing they want you to do is run up a battlefield and get scared. So they want to take out the sensitivity and the emotion out of everything, and that's that's the whole principle behind that, isn't it? I suppose that you right. wouldn't you wouldn't have that but in the workplace.
1: A, you know, there's a a lot of change going on in the military now, and a lot of people will you know, that aren't in favor, will refer to it as, oh, it's the new, sensitive, touchy-feely army, <laughs> but it's more about how you describe, it's like, well, when we are just doing things by rote muscle memory and discipline, like we're not taking into account all of the different perspectives, all of the different things people bring, you know, and turns out uh, from 250 years of military history in the United States, now we are learning that just, ordering and unquestioning obedience is not the best way to conduct operations. And so most, you know, special operations teams and, you know, the Navy SEALs and these highly, highly uh, trained teams that you hear about, you know, they operate on a much more transparent, much less of a structure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my husband is a, a special operations helicopter pilot. He actually just left for Afghanistan this morning. No. Um,
0: Best of luck and to
1: they operate, you know. They all on the helicopter. They all use first names, which is not military, you know. They all use first names. They all have their role; it's defined. They're highly trained, but nobody like one person is in charge, but nobody is necessarily more important than the other.
0: So they use first names now because I remember or years they ago. All die. Yeah, years ago it was always surnames, wasn't it? It was never first names. It was always surnames, you know. So you know, you would yeah. be called Young, and I would be Boiling. More land, over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which kind <laughs> uh... it of, does, it does demand obedience. But uh, in relation to, you know, going back to the cult, did you ever get to meet your parents again, by the way? Or per- I suppose your father would have been, he's passed, probably passed on now at this stage, or he's probably quite old, is he? Yes. Yeah.
1: So my, my parents did leave the cult. So my mother and then my stepfather, who she's been married to for like 25 years now, They eventually left the cult um, when she needed to get medical care for one of her children that was dying, which is another thing that the cult was not in favor of. She just got on a plane and left um, with with her child. And they kind of got away. And my mother and I are very close. We've spent about nine years now having these incredibly difficult discussions about, you know, obviously she was raised in that, that was all she knew at the same time, you know, her children all also suffered as she became a part of the leadership of the group as she grew up. And we, you know, we read a lot of books about other cults and other psychology. We mm-hmm. spend a lot of time having these conversations. My, my dad or my stepdad who raised me is sort of a, a very sweet, nice old man that I don't have these conversations with. Okay so <laughs> and,
0: and are you are you still religious, Tanya but I
1: don't
0: huh, are you still religious? do you believe in God?
1: I am not religious,
0: okay,, no. okay, I think that would put you out religion forever, probably yeah, you're probably <laughs> right, okay, well, look, it's been wonderful talking to you, um, and I know you're writing your memoirs at the moment. So I'm assuming there's going to be a book on the way because I'm sure people will be intrigued to hear your story. It is an intriguing story. And I know it's very personal to you, and I don't mean that in an insensitive way, but for other people reading it from the outside to know what these cults were like, because there were so many of them and there was Waco and there's loads of other cults in America around the same time. And of course, this would have been one of the extreme ones. Uh, Thankfully, not too many people did what they did in Waco and places like that where you had these mass suicides. uh, And I don't know whether that happened, actually, in the the Children of God. uh, but in saying that, I'm sure people would be intrigued to to read the story in more detail and and your story in more detail. So when's the book out?
1: Yes, so I hope people will be intrigued to read it in more detail. Um, I actually just signed a deal with a, a major agency to represent me, and so we are now working on getting the book together and selling it to a publisher. It's a great so... move. There's
0: a great movie in this, Daniela, as well. If you ask me, <laughs> it's an, it's yes. an astonishing. I mean. I, I say this to you like you're almost a third party telling me a story about somebody else because I, you're the person that went through this. And, and, and you have my utter empathy in relation to the way you were treated and your missing childhood and everything else. But I would I could imagine seeing this story, you know, immortalized on the big screen or in some sort of documentary or whatever. It's an astonishing story and something that I, very few people have experienced, What you've experienced in your life.
1: Yes, um, I agree. And I think that it will be. And I think that, you know, as I'm, as I'm learning now, even with this article that I recently published, is like the power of memoir is if you, you know, tell an idea, right, that like all groups are sort of like little cults, people might disagree with you. But when you just tell the story of this is what I experienced, people kind of hear their own experiences in that. And you can unlock these big ideas. So that's what, you know, my book um, currently is called Culture, and that is hopefully what it will be, right? So it'll be the story of... Uh, there how was I went me thinking it would be lost. I, would thought,
0: I thought it was going to be lost in transition, but there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's my TED Talk.
0: So Mind you, that right would be too now, close to lost in translation, which was out many years ago, so it might sound too much like it.
1: Yes, yes. But right now, you know, people can, of course, watch my TED Talk just by Googling my name, and then if anyone is interested in following me on Twitter... They can read my article that is there that is sort of a a condensed version of what the book will be. And then, you know, follow me for updates on hopefully the next year or two. We'll we'll be seeing my memoir come out.
0: Well, look, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure, before that. But if anyone wants to have a look, they go to my Twitter account. If you don't know Daniela's Twitter account, just go to the Niall Boyden Show Twitter account there. And we will tag Daniela in it as well. And you can have a look there. Or if you go to YouTube, actually, which I did earlier on to have a look at the TED Talks, just put Daniela Young in there and you will see her TED Talks, uh, Lost in Transition, which is absolutely amazing to listen to. A nice big audience as well, cheering you on. Uh, Daniela, it was wonderful talking to you, an amazing life, an astonishing life, and certainly one that's very intriguing as well. And I'm delighted you didn't make that decision that night when you were in that post in Afghanistan. I'm glad you're still with us and so positive as well about, that, about life now.
1: You know what? Me too. I'm, I'm very, very happy that I, uh, you know, hung on and, and went through all of it. And my life is, is quite wonderful now. And I'm still a, you know, I'm still a product of all of those things, but I am choosing to see it in different ways, which has been great. And thank you so much for having me as a guest
0: you're welcome Daniela thank you very much indeed there you go Daniela Young uh, you can get her uh, as the, the, there'll be a link on the on our Twitter account there or also you can go on to YouTube if you want a YouTuber uh, what a wonderful uh, young lady and she has certainly gone to a life that nobody else will possibly I'm sure nobody listening has gone to an experience like that in their lives Real People Real Opinions Real Talk Radio The Multi Award Winning Niall Boylan Show
1: Classic Hits